Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Last week, we established the fact that we are, in fact, in a spiritual war. Uh, that our enemy is de facto, he, he, he really exists, he's real, he's not, he's not a, a Satan and the devil is not a metaphor for evil. The, 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 the devil and Satan, the evil one, all the, all the names that we went through, he is a real being, a real person, uh, he is de facto. But he's also defeated, we, we read that in Colossians. Um, but we also read that he was very... Uh, He's still very dangerous and very determined. First Peter five eight that he says he was like a he's like a prowling lion roaming about seeking someone to devour. So he is de facto he really exists, but he's been defeated in an ultimate sense that that the cross has defeated him and in, in the power of death. That that although he's defeated, he is still very dangerous and very determined. And we, I want to follow up on that this morning before we actually start getting into. Uh, the, the actual armor of our warfare. And um, how many of you ever heard of Carl von Clausewitz? Found out this week, a friend of mine sent me, providentially sent me this quote from Carl von Clausewitz. I looked him up. He was a Prussian general that, uh, that fought against Napoleon um, and who quite literally uh, wrote the book on war. In fact, many of his principles and his... Uh, his strategies and his philosophy of war are still being taught today in our military academies. That that's what I understand. Um, he literally he literally wrote the book on the war. And this is back in the what? What, what was early 1800s? Um, he said. Uh, so I looked him up and I read some more. Uh, he, one of the principles he taught um, that when faced with war, one of the first things you have to do. Of all the strategic questions that you have to ask and answer, he said, is to identify the kind of war in which one is engaged. You have to, and, and as much as I have read uh, on the Vietnam War, I think that was one, maybe one of our biggest problems. We didn't fully understand what kind of war we were engaged in. Um, when you think of the guerrilla warfare in the jungle, we weren't prepared, quite as prepared for that. So one of the first things that Carl von Clausewitz said is you've got to first and foremost understand what kind of war you're in. In other words, how does your enemy fight? And, and if, in fact, if you look at 
the wars and the conflicts that we've been engaged in since Vietnam, and particularly the Middle East, these aren't soldiers that wear uniforms, you know, that you can easily identify. These are combatants that look like ordinary town people. Um, so we have to understand what kind of war we're in, and that is also very true when it comes to spiritual warfare. What, what, kind of, what kind of war does our enemy wage against us? What are his strategies? What are his tactics? In fact, look with me back again at verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that this is plural. It's not your devil's scheme. It's his schemes. There are multiple tactics. In fact, that's another way you could probably, uh, probably a synonym for schemes is tactics. Uh, strategies, his modus operandi. How does our enemy, what is his mode of operation in terms of warfare against us? What are his tactics? What are his strategies? That first and foremost, before we start talking about the armor, is we have to understand what kind of war are we in? In other words, our our enemy, what kind of uh, strategies and tactics does our enemy employ against us? So I would like to focus this morning on several of his schemes and his tactics that we see in the Bible. And now this isn't exhaustive. Uh, I suppose you probably, other things would come to mind, texts that would come to mind. But I think these are, these are some of the bigger ones that I, that I seem to have found in the text uh, in terms of what are his schemes, what are his strategies, what are his, his tactics against us. So tactic number one. Tactic number one is Doubt. Doubt. Uh, turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty, which is really Ephesians 6.11, the craftiness of our, of our enemy. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, what are the first words out of his mouth? What were they? Almost all our translations are almost uniform in this one. Did God really say? And, 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 and Satan has been using that tactic ever since. Did God really say? Did God really say that he created the universe Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Did God, when God said, and that was the first day, was that day really a day? Well, for those of you that are in the Genesis study group, you'll, you'll learn more about that. One of the devil's primary strategies is to get us to doubt the truthfulness and the reliability of God's Word. From, from, Liberal scholarship. I've told you this before. When I got this book and it was reading so well about the, 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 second cent, the church in the second century. And, and, and then he got to this chapter. The author got to this chapter and, and he started to deny the Pauline authorship of Second Timothy. That, that's a way of doubting God's word. And, and we, we, we usually, you know, just we don't authorship is not that big of a deal to us, it seems like. But it's a, why is authorship? Why is apostolic authorship so important? In fact, crucial for our understanding of the Bible. Anybody know? Yeah. They, they were the ones and the only ones that were authorized to do it. 
So the only way that we know what God really said was through his apostles. If it really wasn't, if it really wasn't Paul, then it's not, it's not authoritative. Because whoever wrote it wasn't an apostle. Apostleship is so important. Why do you think liberal scholars, the first thing they do, well, you probably haven't read, read a lot of liberal scholars through seminary and even since and I've read, one of the first things liberal scholars do is they attack the authorship of the Bible, of these, of particularly the New Testament letters. They, it wasn't really written by Paul. It wasn't really written by Matthew. It really wasn't. It was, it was, a, it was a, a source called Q, this, this, this source out there that Matthew, you know, copied from. Or worse yet, they say that, the, that these Gospels were the Gospels that the real powerful in the early church liked, and, and they finally got their way. But there were, there were these other Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter, that, that really uh, are, are just as much of an eyewitness testimony to the Christ. And, and all of these uh, did God really say. But not just, not just liberal scholarship, but, but popular perspectives. If you'd ask, if, uh, who, who was it? It was Aubrey. It was my oldest daughter. She was writing a paper in high school, Smoky Hill High School, uh, because this one class, they were really attacking the Bible. And so she wanted to write a paper. She wanted to have uh, first uh, primary research. So I, I arranged for her an interview with Dr. Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament professor at Denver Seminary. And so uh, she, she, asked him some, she would ask him questions he would answer. And one of the questions that she answered, and this is typically what we hear in our culture, is the Bible was written by a bunch of dead white guys. And I'll never forget his response. He said, well, first of all, yes, they are all dead. But two, no, they weren't white guys. What do we hear? What what, what do we hear some other popular perspectives of the Bible? The Bible is just full of a bunch of myths, not mobs, myths, myths. Here, here's, have you ever heard that? Here's what you need to ask him. What do you, what's a myth? A myth, what, anybody know what a myth is? It's a particular genre of literature. How do we, well, how do we know, how do we identify a myth? And you know how you, you know which, how your, your answer right now is exactly what's going to be their answer. So, so we, the, what's another one? The Bible is full of errors, mistakes. Did God really say? It's full of mistakes. And once again, all you have to do is ask them what? Show me one. Or, or um, all kinds of all kinds of popular perspectives that the Bible had. There's mistakes. There's errors. It's just a bunch of myths. The Bible is written by a bunch of dead white guys. And and uh, be sure, be assured that that is one of Satan's strategies, and somehow he's involved in that. I'm not saying that they're possessed by demons or, you know, their head's going to start spinning around. And, but, but that kind of doubt in God's word is solely and strictly from the enemy. You can be assured that he is involved. Tactic number two is deception. Not just doubt, but deception. And this is probably, if, I were to, if, if you were to push me against the wall and say, what would be the one primary tactic? of the devil is, and I would say it's deception in all different kinds of forms. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This seems to be kind of 
Uh, in other words, a lot of his other strategies are kind of a, all a part of his deceptive work, or his work of deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're turning there, by the way, as we become more familiar this morning with his strategies, then when we start talking about his armor, uh, I think it'll make more sense of why Paul uh, said this is the armor that God has given to us. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness, he says. Yes, please put up with me. I am I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was, what? Deceived. We just read that. How was Eve deceived? Ooh, that even rhymes. How was Eve deceived by Satan? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We just read it. Doubt. Did God really say? And then, and then by the way, he, he starts misquoting God, which is interesting. He said, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, deception. They come to our doors all the time. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they preach another Jesus. That's deception. Or you receive a different spirit from the spirit you receive. That's deception. Or a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it easily enough. In other words, this deception is most often seen in what I call doctrinal deception. Um, the, the, the enemy is the source of the deception, but false teachers are the delivery systems. That's why you, we, we studied 1 John in our home group. In our home groups. Remember in 1 John chapter 4, he says, he said, there are many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, am I, am I mixing up? I better, I better look it up. 1 John 4 1. What does he say? I, I've got it all mixed up. Test the spirits. That's what it is. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out. So. What is it? Is it the spirits or is it the false prophets? Well, it's both. It's the spirit of the enemy. It is the spirit of deception, but it's being delivered through false teachers. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, if you were to read just further down, um, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 13, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers. That, that's workers of deception. Workers who who deceive. Masquerading as apostles of Christ. And, and it, it, it boggles my mind that on, on TV we have false, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers galore, and all they have to say is Jesus, and people buy into it. And, and we think false teachers come with you know pitchfork and, and horns and and uh, clearly identify themselves as being part of the enemy. But, but 2 Corinthians says, where are we going to find false teachers? How, do, how are they described? Masquerading as apostles of light. And he says, in fact, it's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Their doctrine is deceptive. Their, their, their office is deceptive. You can be sure... Um, and by the way, in 1 John, it was 
the primary issue of the false teaching was on the nature of Christ. And so, I guarantee you, whenever someone denies the true nature of Christ, you can be assured that, that the devil is involved in that and is deceiving them into rejecting the true nature of Christ. That's his nature. He, is, he deceives This is one of the reasons why we have to be very, very careful. Uh, In fact, we are never taught to go go after the devil. One of the reasons why is he is incredibly deceptive. Let's assume for a moment that... uh, I, I'm a young earther. Let's say there. Let's say, but I'll I'll, I'll grant two or three thousand. Let's say the the, the creation is ten thousand years old. He is, the Satan is at least ten thousand years old. He's not God. He's not omniscient. He's not all knowing. But he's had ten. If I practice bowling for ten thousand years, I probably wouldn't get any better. But no, <laughs> I'd be pretty good. I'd be pretty good at it. Guys, don't buy into this, this, this nonsense about going after the devil and praying against him and demanding it, trying to bind him and all this. He is incredibly, incredibly deceptive. And we can't just say, well, the Holy Spirit's going to give me wisdom. Well, why would he warn us if it wasn't a real threat? Deception. Tactic number three. Division. Ephesians 4.27. Return to Ephesians 4.27. So it's doubt, deception, division. Ephesians 4.27. Someone, someone, we'll, we'll, we're going to memorize Ephesians 4.27 today. Someone read Ephesians 4.27 out loud. Have a volunteer? Nor give place to the devil. You just memorized a verse today. Tom, what does your New American Standard say? Do not give the devil an opportunity. Tom Moore, if you'd please read NIV for me. A foothold. Give place. An opportunity, a foothold. Anybody have a translation that says advantage? Advantage? It's probably King James. What is this exhortation referring back to? Well, it refers back to verse 26. Now let's look at verse 26. Because verse 27 really is explaining verse 26. 26 says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sin go down while you are still angry. So 26b, verse 27 is referring back to 26b. And what does 26b say? Does it say, don't get angry? What does it say? Don't let the sun go down. So so here's, I think, this gives the reference to 27. And 27, is I think, is talking more, not, not so much don't be angry, but it's saying, don't cherish unkind and angry feelings and keep up and retain a spirit of resentment. And he's talking to the body here. In other words, he's saying, he's referencing cherishing ongoing, unkind, angry feelings 
and keeping up this, this spirit of anger and resentment among each other, which causes division in the body. Because in chapter 4 earlier, he says to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And one of the things that destroys unity in the body of Christ is an ongoing cherishing of unkind, angry feelings and holding on to hurt feelings and resentment. We often rationalize this behavior by believing that we are merely defending our rights. Listen, one of the tactics of the enemy is to get you to to defend your rights. And and let me me say this, that I I think that, that there's no one verse that I would point to, but it seems to be the overwhelming message of the Scriptures that when we came to know Christ, we gave up our rights. Why do we get angry when we... Okay, why do I get angry when I drive in my car? Because I feel like I have certain rights. And people impinge on my right. I have a right to expect that you're going to turn, that you're going to turn on your turn signal. I have a right to expect that. No, seriously, the, the, the point is that what he would like nothing better than for us to hold on to angry, resentful, bitterness feelings in the body of Christ, creating division. He loves nothing better than that. So the third tactic is division. Fourth tactic, no more D's. That's your last D. So you're on your own now. Tactic number four is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Go back to 2 Corinthians. I probably could have put this uh, right after 11, but tactic number three. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Very interesting text. um, That if you haven't read 1 Corinthians 5, it probably won't, won't make complete sense to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there, is, if, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. And all of this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Very same word in Ephesians 6. So really the key, the key verse is verse 11. In order, I say all of this, verses 5 through 10, in order that Satan might not outwit us, this is part of his schemes. Now, what is he saying in verses 5 through 10? He's referring to 1 Corinthians 5. If, you remember, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 5, there, there was a man who was having an, a, an incestuous relationship. Well, it actually, technically it wasn't incestuous. He was having a relationship with his, with his husband's wife. Well, today, you know. See how conditioned that we are? His father's wife. I, pr- I probably could. I probably should. I probably should go to First Corinthians five. Uh, first, it was basically his stepmother. Yes, yeah, First Corinthians. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. 
I know, it's, it's not pretty. And, and that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, with his stepmom. And he, says, and, and he says to take church discipline. Most believe that this is exactly, this is a follow-up letter, that this is the man that he's talking about. And what does he say now? Forgive him. Which, impl- which implies what? That the man had become repentant. He had repented. And apparently, even though he had repented, they were still punishing him. They were still disciplining him. And Paul had to say, stop. Forgive him. He said, you should readmit this man. And if you don't, what does he say? Satan will get get an advantage. Now, Paul doesn't specify what this would be. But it might be that in the in the that under the on the guise of our duty and what's right, but setting an example, Satan would tempt them into having a harsh and unforgiving spirit. Because what does he say? He says, "I've forgiven him. You ought to too. You should too." That 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 Satan would tempt them into having a harsh an unforgiving spirit into an unkind and unnecessary severity of discipline that would ruin this man and and ruin the congregation. When this happens, Paul says, it serves in some form or some fashion, he doesn't specify, it serves to give Satan a victory. Unforgiveness. Not just within the body, but in our own lives as well. When we refuse to forgive Our enemy loves nothing better. Unforgiveness. Finally, tactic number five is temptation. Temptation. Matthew chapter 4. Now, obviously, um, the the, the hermeneutical question is, uh, the the temptations of Christ, are these normative? In other words, are, are these what we would expect uh, to find in terms of our own lives? Or were these unique temptations just to Christ? Um, I, I would probably answer that in a couple of ways. Number, number one, um, there is a uniqueness to it. There is an, in, indeed a, a uniqueness to the temptations of Christ, obviously. Um, I, I don't know that any of us have... Um, been tempted to to go up on the top of a, of the temple and jump off to to prove our divinity. Um, on the other hand, I would answer no. That Satan is Satan, or devil is devil, and and the same kinds of temptations that he tempted Christ with, I can expect, or I probably should expect, for him to tempt me with. And and you remember chapter four, uh, uh, verse uh, one: Jesus led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted. By the devil. So the devil tempts. He's a tempter. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands. So you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him and the angels came and attended him. I suppose we could go through each one of these temptations and, and as many commentators have done, and they, they, they link it up with First uh, John, you know, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And they try to draw correlations, and there's probably something to that for sure. And I'm sure that we could go through each one of these and, and draw out, you know, distinctions and, and, and things that are unique about each one of these temptations, what was really going on behind it. But all of that, let, let me just say, all of that, it seems if, if, if we were to boil it all down, into one essence, there was really only one temptation. And that was, do it your way, not God's way. That, that seems to me to be um, really the bottom line of what he was saying to Jesus. Saying, don't, don't, do it, well, don't do it God's way, do it your way. Isn't that really at the heart of all temptation? Is to get me to do things my way? Tempt me to feel the way I want to feel? Tempt me to do what I want to do. In fact, in Matthew 6.13, turn over just a couple of chapters, not long after this, Matthew 6.13, this is part of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Traditionally, the King James was the e- deliver us from evil, but it's probably a substantive. It's from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. And when he says, don't lead us into temptation, James 1 says, God never tempts us. He never tempts us to evil. So what is, what is verse 13 really saying when he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? I think that what he's saying is that deliver us from the tempting power and the deception of the evil one. Deliver us from, from that, that temptation to do things my way. Our enemy is defeated, but he is also a very dangerous, deceptive, and destructive force. And we must understand this. We must understand who he is. But also we must understand how he wages war against us. Doubt. Deception, division, unforgiveness. Um, to go our own way, to do our own thing, to do what feels right. All of these things. Now again, we, we, there are many, many more, I'm sure. We must understand that these are his schemes. And that we not let him defeat us. And next week we'll look at the specific armor now that God has provided to protect us. But, but I, I, when we're singing, in fact, I'm going to... I thought this is the way we really need to end. Um, all authority, every victory is yours, is ours. All authority, every victory is ours. Savior, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise, you overcame. Jesus, awesome in power forever, awesome and great is your name. And then he says, that we saying we will overcome. We will overcome doubt. We will overcome deception. We will overcome division. We will overcome unforgiveness. We will overcome temptation. 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. You overcame. Because He overcame, we overcome. We must take Him seriously. He's dangerous and destructive and deceptive. But the bottom line is, the promise is that we will overcome. But we have a responsibility in it. Let's pray. Father, help us to be mindful and aware, as You've told us, of our enemy's schemes and his tactics. Lord, and as we now learn about the armor You've provided for us, may we put it on every single day. And I fear that oftentimes because either we're not aware that we are in a war, or if we're aware that we are in a war, we're not aware of how He attacks us, that we are exposed. We are exposed to um, His attacks in our lives. So Lord, um, help us to gear up Help us to go into battle and fight the good fight of faith. We thank You that by the blood of the Lamb we have already overcome. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?